Y'all turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1. As we get started, I want us to pray um, this morning together one more time for another church in town. And also uh, that we would do exactly what we just sang and that the word of God would speak despite a feeble uh, vessel of mercy and not with clever or lofty speech that that we would hear his message for his people today. Um, Would you pray with me to that end? Father, as we engage this gospel today, um, we want to pray for another church in town that... um, for the same things that we're after and that we pray for, for this people, that you would do uh, that work in um, Ridgecrest, the church that this body was born out of and sent out of. uh, We pray that you would be held high, your sovereignty would be held high there, your gospel would be held high and proclaimed. And that the people would be fed with the gospel there. As they're without a pastor, we pray for their leadership as they search for a preacher, for a proclaimer of the gospel, that you would send them that thing, that very thing, a preacher and proclaimer of the gospel. And um, we pray that we would stand ready to humbly... um, Help, assist, pray for a teammate in town for the same end. That Jesus and him crucified would be held high and very little else. And that's our prayer. uh, Combined with a prayer that our hearts would be ready to receive what you have to say and that you would do something outside of me and outside of my attempts and our efforts this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Um, we, last time I preached, I preached on 1 Timothy 4, and we're going to go back and pick up 1 Timothy 1 today, and if you remember anything about 1 Timothy 4, I want to kind of give you the context for what happened there in 4 and what Paul was saying there in 4, and then even more back up and say, what is Paul doing here in these things called pastoral epistles? There's three books. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, written in the direction of the pastor, teacher, preacher. And um, the main thrust theme for three books of our Bible is pay attention to what you're saying. Pay attention to the details. Pay attention to what you're preaching. And that may not sound that phenomenal. But what we're going to see today is that it is very phenomenal that we ask the right questions and that we ask the right questions about what people are preaching to us and teaching us. What do we need the preacher to say? What do we need teachers to teach us? And in 1 Timothy 4, he addressed people who were in the body, who were reducing the gospel Remember, Calvin said they were trifling summations. He said, these people are trying to reduce the gospel to this. And you can read four later, but it says that they said, uh, don't eat this certain kind of meat and don't get married and trust Jesus. That's what it's all about. And they were doing that because it was comfortable. It felt comfortable and gave them something to do. It felt good to say, yeah, I trust Jesus, but... You know, to make myself feel good about this salvation, I'm going to abstain from some things, some foods that God has given. And Paul said, that's ridiculous. Everything from God is a gift and blessing if it's taken in thanksgiving. You don't not eat chicken and not get married to feel good about your salvation. And that's what he said in four. And in one, he's going to address a different sort of false teacher and false preacher in, in 1 Timothy 4, the last two verses in 15 and 16, he says this. Timothy, take great pain with doctrine. 
take great pain. Work hard at what you say and make sure you get it right. And then to back up, that's the theme for 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Pay attention to what you're saying to people. And don't be tempted towards other things that we'll see this morning. Don't be tempted to reduce or add to the gospel for any reason. Do not preach towards people's comfort. Do not preach towards men's approval. Preach the gospel. Doesn't sound very phenomenal or spectacular for me to say that. Well, yeah. I mean, most people in our Christian subculture would say, yeah, you preach the gospel. That's what you preach. But then our lives and how we do that would say differently. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're just going to... This isn't real tidy this morning, I'll admit. that We're just going to look at these passages and try and figure out what these guys are saying and what Paul is saying to Timothy to do and then not to do. Okay? And that's, that's all we've got. So let's, let's read first at 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses together. A letter from Paul to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Starts off with this greeting to Timothy, which if we climb into this story would be very encouraging for him. To hear from not only his mentor, but he's hearing from a like-minded brother. Timothy is a real pastor in a real town in a real church. So take your mind there. He's a real pastor in a real town in a real church. And he's holding up, trying, a high view of the gospel and a high view of God's sovereignty. And to hear that from Paul in the greeting... That an apostle of Christ Jesus, by what? By the command of God. He says in his greeting, remember Timothy, this is God's business. You're just a servant, and I'm just a servant. This is God's business. I imagine if he's in Ephesus, he's probably not got any like-minded teammates at all. Most likely. Most likely he's faced a lot of opposition. But more than that, the greatest discouragement for him is the mess that's made within the church. Because people are not preaching the gospel. And they're not holding the gospel high within the body. And so, what an encouragement to hear from a like-minded brother. And I'll tell you, as an elder and a pastor and a preacher, dude, it can be lonely. When you're holding high the gospel and holding high God's sovereignty, that this is God's work and that we preach the gospel... Again and again and again. And if that's what we cling to, that can be a lonely place even here. Even in the Bible Belt, it can be a lonely place. And so it's encouraging for me, and hopefully it's encouraging to you to hear. This isn't a cute idea that we have to hold high doctrine. This isn't a neat invention of ours at Crosspoint to preach the gospel every week and to keep returning to the sovereignty of God, to keep returning to these doctrines of our faith. 
That's not our neat idea. That's what Paul charged Timothy with. This is the gospel that he was entrusted with. And so it's encouraging for me to hear this, a like-minded brother. Now, then he goes into, in verse 3, he goes into what is really happening there. Okay, so here's, here's where the warning comes. Here's where, after the fresh wind of encouragement, now he's paying attention. And that's what we need to do, pay attention to what's happening here so it doesn't happen here. Okay? Look at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So not only is he about to tell you what to be preaching, and not only are you not to put up with that, you're to tell those people to stop. And two of these dudes he's already kicked out. If you look at the last verse in chapter 1, just flip over really quick, they got names. He calls them out. And he names them. He's already kicked them out. Their name is Hymenaeus and Alexander in verse 20. So, I've already turned over two dudes to Satan. I've already kicked them out because they weren't preaching the gospel. Now, there's some other people that we're going to address too. And what's going on here is that these people are not preaching the gospel. It may sound like the gospel, and it may sound religious, and it may be impressive, and it may be comforting what they're saying to you, but it is not the gospel. So not only are you to teach the right things, you're to make people stop when they're not teaching the gospel. You don't put up with it in the body. What does it mean? I worked all week and was so frustrated over what does it mean to devote yourself to myths, verse 4, myths, Endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship of faith. I, w- I wanted so bad to climb in and somebody explain to me what that is. We don't get a lot of really good explanation historically. But what we do get is these guys, probably just like Hymenaeus and Alexander, what they did was they claimed to be experts in the law. This is a Jewish misuse here. The Jews were misusing what they knew about the law to sound very impressive. And so this endless genealogy, what they would do is so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And they would pick a really obscure name that nobody knew. Most likely nobody knew who this name was. And then they might say some true things about that person in the genealogy and then make up a really fabulous story about that person. Whether it was true or not wouldn't matter. But they were making up stories about obscure names and genealogies that would make people go, watch this, whoa, I've never heard that before. That's cool. That's a great story. That really held my attention. That was cool. I have never heard that before. Wow, that's cool. Thank you for sharing your wonderful knowledge of that Genealogy. You must really know a lot. That's what was happening here. And people were listening. And they loved it because they held their attention and they told them fabulous stories. Sensational stories. Spectacular. And people were paying attention to these dudes. And it was sensational. It was spectacular. The win for us If we're to define the win, a lot of business uh, books will tell you define the win for your team so you know what the win is. If we're going to define the win for us, the win for us is not for you to leave here saying, wow, I never heard that before. Oh, Brad, boy, he he nailed it. He showed me something I had never seen. He's smart. I'm so impressed by him. That's not the win. For the bride of Christ, here's the win. You know what happened? The preacher reminded me what I needed again. And it was true. He told me something that was true that I knew before last week, but I needed a reminder that it was true again. He didn't tell me anything necessarily new, but he told me what was true. And you don't need to be impressed. You need truth. I don't need to be impressed with fascinating stories. I need what's true. I need to be reminded of the gospel. It's true. 
Our, the resurrection proves it. The tomb, empty, historically true. It's true. It really happened. And that's what we need to be reminded of. Not necessarily a fascinating story. We don't need something new and impressive. And I need to be reminded of what is true. Listen to what Paul says. Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And put Paul's words here up against the myths and genealogies and the fabulous, sensational, spectacular stories that these... And by the way, these guys saying this at Ephesus were very likely elders or small group leaders or deacons. Most scholars believe that these dudes had been given positions of influence in the body. Now, listen to what Paul says in... 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Now, remember, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, let's see what, how Paul operates. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but your faith might rest in the power of God. Lofty speech, sensational stories, impressive wisdom. Listen, listen church. Those things don't do anything for you. Not helpful. A neat, impressive, self-help guide for you this next week may feel like it's helpful, but it doesn't help you. The only thing that's helpful for you is Romans 4, 5. There is a righteousness outside of you, and it's Jesus, and it's true, and it's real. That's what's helpful, not lofty speech. And so, these guys, they want people to be impressed with them, and they want people to feel comforted by how smart they are. Now, in our context, we are comforted by sensational. We are comforted, I think. I mean, I am. I, I, there is something in me that is very comforted when what's going on in front of me, whether it's the preacher or a teacher or a show I'm watching about faith, I'm very comforted when it's very sensational and spectacular. And you know why? It's because I am so, really, I am so afraid of being mundane and lumped in to the ordinary. And I want, I want to think, man, I'm kind of a part of something pretty cool. I mean, that's my depravity. Let's just own it for what it is. We really don't want to be lumped in and be mundane and ordinary. We would love to be a part of something that's pretty sensational. And when this guy who stands here is sensational and spectacular, feels pretty good because I'm a part of that. And I'm here, so I'm kind of a big deal because he's kind of a big deal, so I'm kind of a big deal. And we are comforted when we feel impressed and our senses are jazzed, even at the expense of truth. So I'm not really listening for, is what he's saying really true? Or is it sensational? And I really feel good when it's spectacular. Sensational defined, listen. Sensational defined, presenting information in a way that is intended to provoke public interest and excitement. Comma, at the expense of accuracy. Look it up in your dictionary. Sensational, presenting information in a way that is intended to provoke public interest and excitement at the expense of accuracy. That's what's happening in 1 Timothy 1. These guys are sensational. The question that we should be asking is, is what you're telling me true? Is it right? 
not am I comforted by it. Here's the reality for me. I think you can ask Scott Sutton, Ben, Jake, Jeff, anybody here that's a teacher, Steve. You, you ask any, any of them. This is what the enemy whispers before we come to this. The enemy, I don't know if it's the enemy or if it's my depravity, maybe both. The enemy whispers these things. These people really need to be impressed and comforted today. They need to be inspired. And they're not going to be impressed with you. If you make another beeline to the cross, uh, you just say they need Jesus again. Uh, what else you got? That's what's whispered in the preacher's ear. You better come up with some way to provoke excitement and public interest. Because if you preach the gospel again, they're going to stop listening and they're not going to stay. Don't worry about whether it's really, really, really true or not. You better embellish this thing so they'll stay. And <clears throat> last night, this, um, let me put my foolishness on display here. Uh, last night, I'm going over the sermon with Christy, and trying to, she's trying not to fall asleep. And <clears throat> I was just kind of anxious and had some angst about today. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I don't have, I mean, I'm examining and fact collecting and we're pointing to Jesus, but I don't have any illustration or And she said, are you kidding me? <laughs> what did you just read? So that's where we're at. And that's what the weight of this is all about. Is that we don't come to this self-seeking. We don't come to this gospel man-centered. We don't come to it lightly. We come saying, what do we need? What is true is what we need. And then it hits me. And I have to be reminded of this. And you need to be reminded of this. And we have to remember this. That grabbing the hearts of men is God's business, not mine. Grabbing the hearts and attention of men is, is God's business. It's not mine. Turn, just flip over a couple pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 5. In the midst of a division in the church. Everybody's arguing and complaining and there's a division. And people aren't getting along. Why? Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. He who plants and the waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation. Here's the key. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is already laid. Which is Jesus. The Christ. I have nothing for you unless I give you Jesus Christ. Complete, finished atonement outside of you. Believe it. Trust it. And next week, I'll have nothing for you unless I give you that. Unless I preach that. That's it. And so they're arguing. Oh, I like when Apollos preaches because... I mean, he, he's funny. I like it when Paul preaches because he baptized me or so-and-so baptized me or whoever. And he says, who am I? Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Cling to the gospel. Do you see that? Man, if you, if you find yourself, I know we have visitors here today, and, and from time to time we have people who are looking for a church home who visit with us, or maybe you're about to move or you're moving or in transition. 
um, man, if, if you find yourself craving the need to be comforted and impressed by the sensational and spectacular, uh, man, watch the CMA Awards. Watch the Country Music Awards. If you need to be impressed, if you need to be your senses to be jazzed, if you need something spectacular, turn on the TV. Watch the Country Music Awards, which that, by the way, is a heresy, but we won't go there. <laughs> Ask yourself the right questions when you come to a body and to worship. Is the gospel being preached? Is it being preached truly and newly? Not, how do I feel about the experience? These people, turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. These folks in verse 6, we're going to skip verse 5 and come back to that in just a minute. Let's read verse 6 and 7 again. These people are impressive, but they're also selfish. And I want to show you why they're selfish. Uh, verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They really want to come off looking smart and competent. And we want that in our leadership. We want some sort of competence about what they're saying. But this is what you want. You want convinced but teachable. You want convinced but teachable, not confident coming off looking smart, unapproachable. He's so smart I could never argue with him. I could never have a conversation with him. He's just too smart. He's just too confident. That's what's happening here. And that's what they're doing to the people. They're saying, look, don't even, don't even question me. I know this. I'm making such confident assertions that it intimidates people that they won't even ask questions. But you have to. You have to ask, is what I'm getting true? Is it the gospel? Is it Jesus? And Jesus only. And that's selfish. And it's not loving for a pastor to do that. For a preacher to do that. For a small group shepherd to do that. It's not loving for a dad to talk like that to his family. It's not loving for you to come off impressive. And for your main goal to be, I need to impress these kids and this wife that I have. I need to come off looking good and smart and competent. That's not loving. These people are not getting the gospel. They're not understanding the gospel. That's what Paul's burden is. That the people in Ephesus, the church and the body would understand Jesus. Trust him. Believe him. And they're not getting that from the teaching. This gospel preaching is unique. Because it's historical and it's real. You've heard me say that. It's a real account. And what these guys are wanting to do is impress people with their religious lesson. And this is no just religious lesson. This is not a moral, moral guide. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is the last one I'll have you turn to. Just 2 Peter chapter 1. And I, sh- I want to show you what's not selfish and what is loving. Paul's going to talk about what is loving in verse 5. We're going to look there in just a minute. What is loving? How, how are you loved by your preacher? How are you loved by your teacher? And it's selfish to say to people, I got the knowledge and I'm going to lessen you. I'm going to teach you good about how to be religious. I'm going to teach you about how much I know and you don't. This is what Peter says. Listen, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. For if you practice these qualities, we'll look at those in a second, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12, therefore, this is what the preacher says, I intend always to remind you of these things, these qualities, though you know them and are established in them in the truth that you have. I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. What is he stirring them up by way of reminder? Look at verse 1. Look back at verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus. 
That's what he started with. And then he went into several verses of how they're sanctified. You start with Jesus, a righteousness outside of yourself, and that's going to produce these things in you, and I'm going to continually remind you of that. He's your only righteousness, and he makes you look different. Here's how you should be looking different. Here's what you practice. Trusting Jesus for your righteousness, this is how you live. I'm going to continually remind you of that. Nothing else. There's no religious lesson here. I'm not not pushing you to earn something. I'm not telling you to act a certain way. I'm telling you to trust Jesus, his righteousness, obtained for you, giving us equal standing because of Jesus and his righteousness, not yours. I'm going to continually remind you that as long as I've got breath, as long as I'm in the body, that's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to remind you of it over and over and over again. That's what a good preacher does. Over and over and over again. I'm going to remind you of this. This Bible that we have, it's, it's a historical story that we believe that it's our story. It's true historically. It's redemptive and it's our story. It's not a moral guide. It's not just inspirational songs, psalms. It's not just 10 ways to follow Jesus. While you can see how to follow Jesus in this, and while you can attempt Jesus' morality, good thing, and while you can be inspired by the songs, you can do those things and go to hell. Here, let me say that again. While you can attempt Jesus' morality, and while you can be inspired by the Psalms, you can be inspired by the knowledge, by the connections, and while you can be impressed with the story, you can do all those things and go to hell if you don't trust the one that it's about. Do you see that? We don't approach this as a religious lesson. This is our story. And it's who we are. And we believe it. And it transforms us. Here's a warning for Crosspoint. If you're visiting today, you can listen in. A warning for Crosspoint. I think we would all agree that we have held up the gospel high. We've tried. We have discovered some particulars and doctrines about our faith by looking at the full counsel of the word and you hear that from us and we hear that from you over and over and over again that we really love this word and this story that's ours and we've embraced it, okay? I think we would say we, we have a good appetite for it and we want that appetite for the scriptures but here's the warning. We can find ourselves enamored with the journey and not worship Jesus and trust him. We can find ourselves enamored with these particulars and doctrines and knowledge. And I never, I've never heard that before. It's not always bad. If it's showing you a new avenue to Jesus, that's a good thing. I've never heard that avenue to Jesus before. I've never, I've never heard that connection about my story before. I never knew that character of God before that makes Jesus more amplified. I've never heard that before. That's the good way. But just saying, now I know more. That, that's cool. I know some more things. I know more things now. If that's where it ends, I left here today and now I know more things. You can take that and go to hell. Listen to what John said. We've heard this before. John chapter 5, just listen, 37 through 39. Listen to what Jesus is telling them. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. This form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. Listen, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. That's Jesus talking. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's those scriptures that point to me. And so we must be careful. Like Paul is telling Timothy to be careful, we must be careful. Where is the preaching taking us? Is it taking us to the cross and to Jesus? 
Or is it taking us to comfort and sensation and spectacular? Look at verse 5. Back to 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. I told you we were going to skip that verse and we're coming back to it now. What does he mean by the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is loving. That you love people with the gospel. It's not loving for a teacher and a preacher to have in mind for you how you'll be comforted, how you'll be impressed, how you will approve. It's not loving for a preacher or a teacher or your small group shepherd. And kids, listen, children, it's not, it's not loving for you to expect that out of your dad. It's not loving for you to expect that out of him or your mom. It's loving to give people the gospel story. That's what's loving. In contrast to coming off looking smart and in contrast to being impressive and spectacular is this. Love people with the gospel good news story of Jesus. Again and again and again. Because that's how, listen, that's how you were loved. That's how I was loved. And so that's how we will love each other with this gospel story. You can turn there if you want. But Ephesians 1, let me just, just listen for how we were loved. Ephesians chapter 1, listen for how you and I have been loved through the cross. Through the atonement of Jesus, this is how we were loved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We were loved with his blood. Something had to die. And it was him. We were loved with his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Are you kidding me? Seriously? All of them? Forgiveness. That's how we were loved. According to what? The riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Lavished? You know what that that implies? Grace upon grace upon grace. It implies again and again and again and again. If you lavish on somebody, you throw it on them, and then you pile it on. And then you pile it on some more, and you pile it on some more, and you pile it on some more. Lavished. Grace upon grace upon grace. And then when you've gotten that much, you know what happens? You get more. You lavished again. And you trespass and you fall and you get more grace. That's how you were loved. That's how I was loved. Through the cross. It was lavished upon us. That's how we were loved. In all wisdom and insight. We were loved with the big picture in view. We weren't loved as God's special snowflake. We were loved with his big picture glory in view with all wisdom and insight. That's how he loved us. He didn't love us individually. He loved us as a people. He loved us with wisdom and insight. Jesus, who gets the big picture, who was before creation, laid down his life and loved us in that way. He has all wisdom and insight. He knows what's happening and he can be trusted. And he has the big picture in view. And that's how we were loved, with that kind of love. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth as a plan for the fullness of time. In him we have have obtained an inheritance. We're given an inheritance that wasn't ours. We were due death. We don't rate it. We don't deserve it. And then we're given this inheritance of his glory. We're given this inheritance, and that inheritance is him. We get him. We don't die, and we get him. And we get to enjoy him forever. That's the inheritance. That's how we were loved. It's not loving for anybody to preach and teach to you. And I hope as you're thinking, you're thinking about asking questions. What questions are you asking about what you're being taught and what's being preached? The gospel, the Bible, is about the complete, finished work of Jesus, and that's how we love people. We love him with his death, the blood. We love him with forgiveness. We love him lavishing grace upon grace. If this is how we're truly to love people, if this is how your preacher is truly to love you, if this really is how we love, is by continually reminding you of the gospel of his death and his atonement being it, 
If that's really love and everything else is useless that doesn't have that, if everything else is useless, <clears throat> this is what's heartbreaking. Then why do very few people ask me or Ben or Steve or Scott, what are you preaching? And I'm not talking about you, you all, because many of you have when you came here. You were asking the right questions. But I'm thinking about people in uh, ministry. And I say that not condescending. I'm just saying they just say they're in ministry and I haven't approved it. I haven't approved it. I'm just saying they're coming to me as an acquaintance who claim to be in ministry to the church. And the questions are, how many? How much? How often? Not, what are you preaching? What are you saying to people? What do you give them every Sunday? How do you give it? Nobody's asked. Nobody in eight years has ever asked Ben. Another pastor or ministry friend has ever asked Ben. What do you teach your people? What do you say to them? What do you give them? What are you preaching? What are some of these particulars that, that your people hang on? What are the particulars of the gospel that God is using to grip and save your people, Brother Pastor? Tell us how you are keeping your people's election sure. I'll, I'll be surprised the day I hear that one. <laughs> how are you keeping your people's election sure, brother? And instead it's, y'all finished that building yet? Is it pretty inside? Are you loving people with the gospel? If nobody's asking this, then we're a hairline away from becoming a spectacle. If, if, if nobody's asking that question, then the church is a hairline away from becoming a spectacle. I feel like when I'm asked, how is your church? I should just say, spectacular, sensational. Wonderful. Millions. A bunch. Instead, I see the answer just doesn't seem to do it for them to say, man, I see faithful, long obedience, same direction. I see transformation. I see people clinging to Jesus. And I see Little disciples running around everywhere doing the same. Wah, wah. <laughs> so how do we do this? I'm going to end with this. Look at what he says here. Um, I can't try harder to do that. And I, we can't. But this is what has to happen. You have to have the pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A good conscience... Pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. So what does he mean in verse 5 when he says that? This is what he means by pure heart. That really, 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 my only intention in preaching is to love you with the gospel. And so I never preach unless I take you to Jesus. That's a pure heart. I have really no intention. And when I say that, I mean that. I have no intention of, being, uh, of impressing you or being approved by you or you being comforted or leaving here going, man, he's good. Or, man, that... Those songs were great. I love it when we sing those songs. I love it the way we sing them. I like it that we have candles burning. That was cool. That's not the goal. A pure, a pure heart says, I'm not worried about your comfort. I'm worried. I'm concerned. My aim is to love you with the gospel. Because that's what I've been charged with. So that's the pure heart. Good conscience. <clears throat> a good conscience a good preacher is well acquainted with his own heart. And I can say like Paul in verse 15. Turn the page. Verse 15. I can say with him this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you don't hear that from your preacher and teacher, you need to because that means they've got the good conscience. The good conscience that says, and, and I don't, a friend of mine we're talking this week, I don't think he's ranking himself here. What I think he's saying is, I don't know about you guys, but I know my heart. And I'm well acquainted with it. And it's the worst. In my eyes, from my vantage point, this heart is the most evil I know. 
And so I, I must trust Jesus. That's a good conscience. And that's a, that makes a good preacher. And then lastly, a sincere faith. A sincere faith is one that's uncomfortably transparent about their own heart. They're sharing with you their weakness like Paul did in 1 Corinthians. I share with you in weakness. I fumbled over my words. But one thing is for sure. You know what I told you. I told you Jesus Christ and him crucified. Don't get hung up on how I said it. Don't get hung up on how I fumbled and failed with my words. Listen to what I said. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's sincere faith. And I know that <clears throat> it didn't come across good sometimes. And I know it wasn't lofty. And I know it wasn't that impressive. But that wasn't my aim. My aim was to love you with the gospel. And that is a sincere faith. One that's transparent. I'm okay with you knowing that I'm not a very good husband most of the time. I'm okay with you knowing that I'm never a good husband unless I trust Jesus. I'm okay with you knowing that I'm not a good dad to Lily unless I trust Jesus. And that I don't love her any better way than to give her the gospel. And I don't do that most of the time. I mean, there it is. That's sincerity. I, I'm not trying to pull any punches or hide anything. I'm in this with you. Sincere, sincerely, that's my faith. I'm trusting Jesus because I can't do it. So, how are you loving your spouse? How are you loving your children? How are you loving your friends? How are you loving this body, deacons? Is it with the gospel or is it with a lot of activity? Dads, we're coming up on the Christmas season, the financial tail whooping of the year. <laughs> and are you coming to Christmas hoping that you'll be sensational with the gifts that you buy and impressive and spectacular? Or are you thinking, I'm going to make sure this season I love my kids with the gospel. They know what this is really about. Now, that sounds very glad-handing, but that's a temptation for me. I want to be sensational to my kids. I want to be spectacular. But I'm not, unless I love them with the gospel. Is it with truth of a lavished grace via his blood that I love people in my family? Pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's what we must have. And I hope and pray that you keep asking the right questions of me, of your elders and your deacons, of your small group shepherd, that you ask the right questions. Now, let me say one clause here. Being clever and funny is a tricky thing because God has given us personalities and giftings that sometimes that helps clarify the gospel. But when it gets in the way, quit. When being clever and funny and using illustrations gets in the way of Jesus is your only righteousness. And you never get there because you're too busy being funny and clever. Quit. But God does use that to amplify his gospel. So let me say that. Just be careful. There are three books in our Bible that say, be careful in what you say and how you say it. Three books. What kind of questions are you asking about what you're being taught and what you're listening to and what you read? And when you go to the bookstore and you podcast things, what are you asking? Let's pray. God, help us to um, have pure hearts this morning as we hear the gospel and talk about it and say it and help us have a good conscience. Help us by your spirit to really be acquainted with our own heart here as we come to your supper and really um, have a sincere faith that we're not trying to hide anything, that we are uncomfortably transparent with you and with each other about our depravity. And that we don't come to this moment where we take this supper clinging to anything but you. And we can't even do that. I can't even do that without the work of your Spirit's conviction of my sin, righteousness, and judgment. God, we, we enjoy 
how you've loved us in this moment. And we're going to enjoy your blood and your body as love as we come to this supper. And we are so in awe and we worship Jesus continually and help us as we love others with the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Just like I prayed, we're about to enjoy the way he's loved us. We're going to enjoy his death, finished, complete atonement for sin. We're going to enjoy this sacrament that he's given to the church as a reminder and as a way of, in reality, physically saying, I love you. This is love that you take my body and my blood and you hold to it. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And then when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup. And after that, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now listen to this passage. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim something. You proclaim what? The Lord's death. We're proclaiming his blood. We've been loved by his death. No more need for a sacrifice. No more need for insufficient sacrifice. No more need for insufficient anything. Sufficient, done, he's seated. We're going to proclaim his death now as his love for us. Loved by his blood. Take and drink. Father, as we come to a time of of giving, of offering. We come uh, proclaiming that we are not doing this to attempt to earn or impress. We're worshiping by setting aside a portion of what you've given us and we give in worship. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you're going to demand anything of each other or of your elders and your deacons here, demand that you be loved with the gospel. I hope that's what you're thinking, and I hope that you're asking the right questions. And um, pray for us that we will do that. You, you need to know that that's the charge we've been given is to love with the gospel. Um, I'm going to dismiss us in prayer. Uh, thank you, Jake, for sharing. Um, we have... Uh, the Huck's here for a few more days, and the Simmons here for a little while longer. So if you haven't, let today be a reminder to connect, talk with, um, love them with the gospel, hear, listen, pay attention to how we can impact what's going on there, if you haven't already. Father, uh, help us by your Spirit to love this world with the gospel because that's what we're doing at home, and that's what we do here. And... Um, we just pray that we would preach nothing but Jesus and him crucified. And that's it. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.